Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. The mission of Northern Spirit Radio, and specifically the Spirit in Action program, is to promote world healing by providing a voice to those doing that work. And today's guest will be sharing how she's done that in two very different ways. For half a century, Barbara Shell Ludke has been working in deaf education, empowering expression by those who literally had no voice. And just this spring, Barbara released her book, The Kendall Sparrow, set in mid-17th century England, about Elizabeth Fletcher, a 15-year-old who found a voice to proclaim to people in England and Ireland on inspiration that was theretofore considered the unique province of older males. Barbara Shell Ludke joins us today via Zoom. Barb, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. I understand that you just retired this past week. How does it feel to be a retired person? It's a little odd in these times of COVID-19, I have to say. I feel like I've kind of been practicing for about three months, but I do look forward to doing some other things with my time now, now that I'm out of school. The main reason that I got you here today for Spirit in Action is because I encountered your book, The Kendall Sparrow. We're going to talk about that, but first I wanted to talk about your professional career because that intrigued me quite a bit as well. You were outreach and literacy coordinator for the Northwest School for Deaf and Hard of Hearing Children. How long did you do that work? I've been here about a decade And before that, I was a professor in deaf education for about 40 years in states like Kansas, Illinois, and then lastly in Denton, Texas at Texas Women's University. And then you went to Northwest School, which is located where? Seattle, Washington. You've written a whole number of books, I think eight textbooks, all of them related to this work that you were doing. What got you into this work, since obviously you're a hearing individual? Well, I was a hippie back in the day and went to my first year of college and decided I wanted to drop out of school for a while. I looked around for some place to go and have some meaningful work, and I ended up at a school for the deaf in Tijuana, Mexico. So I hitchhiked out there primarily because the woman that ran that school was very welcoming And I really fell in love with signing and deafness. And I came back, finished up my undergraduate work, and went on to get a master's and then a doctorate in deaf education. I'm falling in love with you just hearing of this past. This is such a wonderful time. What year was it that you hitchhiked out to Tijuana? It would have been about 1969. So again, somehow you, while in Tijuana, you got into this course Again, what took you into the course? I mean, there's lots of other things you can do in Tijuana. It's just so amazing that you can have a language on your hands. I often still look at my hands after all this time and think, you know, most people don't even realize that I can communicate very abstractly and successfully using my hands. And I just was always very intrigued with that. 
And so I came back and decided I was going to make that my focus. And the more I took coursework in that area, the more I just thought, you know, this is really what I would like to do. I think in part because deaf ed is luckily a very small field, about one in a thousand children have significant hearing loss, and it felt very manageable to me. So that field has taken me to several states and a couple of kids, and it's been a good life for 50 years. I remember my own excitement about learning about the ability to speak with one's hands. I was in eighth grade at the library. I ran into book. And so I learned to do the alphabet with, you know, just A, B, C, D. I could just do that. I didn't really learn the words, but it was still amazing to me. Like I, I could do that. And I was into reading adventure books. Doc Savage, who was a kind of a, a pulp magazine hero of the 1930s. And he and his men could always communicate in sign language. Wow, I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, so it, it was kind of an adventure thinking about the alternative thing. But I'm intrigued by the fact that you got involved in this, got enthusiastic about it while going to Tijuana, where, of course, Spanish is the language. Before you got on the air, you told me that you sign in English as opposed to American Sign Language, ASL. I found that interesting because here you are going to Tijuana, where Spanish would be the language, and you're signing in, you're learning to sign in English, is that right, as opposed to ASL? Oh, so at that time, the children came in, it was the first school there, and the children came in from their homes, having been kept at home, some of them for quite a while. And they had developed their own communication methods and signs. And the school spent a lot of time sort of standardizing what they were using. And because Tijuana is so close to the border, I'm sure there was some influence from American Sign Language. And I took American Sign Language in my college career. I'm so old that at the time I was in my master's program where I first entered the field of deaf education, sign was not available for credit. I learned sign in the basement of churches from deaf adults. And at that time, it was even controversial as to whether hearing people should be taught sign. But anyway, I did start out with American Sign Language, but as I entered my years of teaching, I just ended up being at schools where English signing was used, primarily because children need to learn to read and write, and American Sign Language doesn't have a written form. So even my own children grew up on English signing and then learned ASL, American Sign Language, as preteens. That's fairly common in some parts of the United States to be bimodal like that. Well, that's really interesting to me. Now, as I said, you've written something like eight textbooks, but your bestseller, if you will. And again, since this is a very minority field for the United States, a bestseller in deaf education is not a bestseller on the New York Times list, right? That's absolutely true. So tell us about One Mother's Story. One Mother's Story is a book I wrote after adopting two deaf children. I have four adult daughters, the youngest two of whom are deaf. And it's basically a way to tell our story, which a lot of people were interested in, because at the time I was doing a lot of public speaking in my field. 
but it's also a way to help parents know how we integrated different things into our life, like literacy and interpreting and just a variety of issues. It's a pretty quick read and it just has a lot of parent information embedded within our family story. At what age did you adopt them? Were you already fluent and how did it come about that you adopted them? Well, when I got married, I had already started the process of wanting to adopt a deaf child. And my fiance, then to become my husband, asked if we could have a couple of kids of our own, make sure everything was fine with them, and then we could pursue adoption. That happened, and we started the process of looking for a child. I, as I said, was consulting and speaking a lot in the field, and people knew me, and a person in Paris, Texas, helped me find my oldest adoptive daughter, who's Mary Pat. So we adopted her when she was two, and she was and is just a very smart, clever little girl. She'd already figured out some signs of her own, had a lot of bad behavior because she was very frustrated. And she came into our home. I was already a professor in the field, and we all started learning to sign. All the kids became very good signers, can still sign today. And I don't know, it just became very obvious that she was always going to be the only adopted deaf person in our family unless we got another child. So we started looking around for a second child. And that took us a couple of years, but we eventually found our youngest daughter, Marcy, and um, we adopted her. So she's from Bulgaria, but she had been adopted into the United States in Michigan, and it hadn't worked out very well. And so there was an agency in the United States that was looking for someone, and it just happened to end up to be us. <laughs> Could you give me some of the ideas? I, I can theorize what it would be like to have a deaf child in a world that's primarily hearing. I had a, along the way, uh, one of my best friends and a roommate, Ed, his younger brother was deaf or became deaf in the course of his life. So Ed did not grow up signing with his brother. But after his brother became deaf for his brother's birthday one year, Ed took a course to learn signing so that he could actually communicate with his brother with sign, as well as by reading lips and all that kind of thing. So I have some idea of what's entailed in that. But being the mother of two deaf children, I'm sure there's all kinds of things that are completely invisible to those of us who just take for granted the water in which we swim, the hearing world. So what was different about being the mother of two deaf children that way? Well, there's a lot of things I probably don't remember, but one thing that always kind of makes me giggle is when I read the foreword to One Mother's Story, it talks about my day from beginning to end, and it sounds just exhausting. And it's hard for me to imagine that that actually was my life at the time. I was very fortunate in that my ex-husband was very supportive of this whole thing, learned to sign, which a lot of dads don't. My older girls were great at trying to learn to communicate and being good advocates for their little sisters. And so there's a lot of wonderful things that happened in our family because of it. Some of the first things I remember is uh, putting flowers and other adornments on tables, like in restaurants, on the floor so that we could communicate across the table. I remember a child coming over to play with one of my hearing girls, and I was telling Mary Pat that I was going to go to the bathroom. I'd be in the bathroom. And I remember that child saying, oh, why does your mom always tell where she's going? 
my hearing child, Hannah said, well, you know, because the deaf kids want to know where she is because they can't hear where she goes. So I have, you know, some stories like that about the kids getting frustrated because they'd be trying to play hide and seek and the older girls would find them easily because they'd hear them breathing like in the closets and stuff. You know, so just some funny things that happen when you have deaf children. It was a very impacting experience in my life. A lot of great things happened because of it. A lot of challenging things, too, because those girls got a lot of attention. We'd go into a grocery store, especially when Mary Pat was two and she was just darling. Not that Hannah was not a cute little kid, too, but she just couldn't compete with. There's just some kind of fascination about when people see someone signing to a little child. And so Mary Pat would get immediately get the attention. That even happened years later when I took those two girls to Taiwan when I was doing some consulting. And people would come up and give presents to Mary Pat and Hannah would be standing there like, hey. (laughs) What am I, chop liver? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. So needless to say, you know, there was some disharmony in the family as well. And then financially, it was a hardship because we would often get interpreters for things. And you know, interpreters cost money. So even though my family signed well, there's a real difference between signing conversationally in a family situation and interpreting a children's play or a performance or, you know, even Quakers sometimes had some rough spots because our family could communicate in meeting in the silence. And I remember getting eldered one time to not sign in meeting because we could communicate silently, but we weren't supposed to be communicating at all. So there were some interesting things that happened to us as a mixed family. There's so many aspects of life that we take for granted. Just don't think about it at all. By the way, I want to check something. You do know ASL as well as English typically, but the sign for Quaker, I've seen it represented. Is it what I think it is? Can you show me? Yeah. The sign for Quakers is bringing your hands together and rotating your thumbs, like twiddling your thumbs. And it is the sign I've always seen. It's in books, sign books. And I've also included that in the Kendall Sparrow as to how to make that sign, because I thought people might want to know. You know, one of the things that intrigued me, I have seven grandchildren now, and with youngest, I was very intrigued when they were not yet one year old, be feeding them, and their parents learned to use sign to ask if they've had enough or more, and they could make the signs, because they're pre-verbal at that point, they're not talking yet. Do you have any idea of the genesis of that? I mean, certainly it makes sense to me. And does that mean that Mary Pat learned to speak earlier than most kids do? There's actually a literature about that. What's necessary is that a child has object permanence. Object permanence is when you like hide a toy under a blanket without them seeing you do that. And then they know to look under the blanket for the toy. Anybody, hearing or deaf, has to have object permanence before they really have a command or a use of language. So the trick with signing is whether they've learned some kind of stimulus response, like when I make this handshape, then I get more food, or if they truly understand that that is a form of communication. There is evidence of children who use sign starting to use sign at six months, eight months, certainly earlier than children learn to speak. 
my own daughter Hannah had many, many signs, and her really only verbal utterance was buh. So she would say buh, but she would sign baby, buh for bottle, all kinds of things. When her speech became articulate, she dropped out all her signing. And by the time we adopted Mary Pat, Hannah was five, she only remembered the sign for candy. So, you know, obviously kids would rather talk than sign in a lot of cases, but it certainly has its place when children are young and they want to tell you something and you can't understand their speech. Folks, we are speaking with Barbara Shell Ludke. Barb is joining us from the Seattle region where she lives, and she's just retired. And Barbara, I did want to ask about that. I, I said, how is it being retired? Part of this I'm, I'm using as a segue to the book that you just released, The Kendall Sparrow, because it seems to me that when you're working full-time, I really do not understand the people who write books while they're working a very grueling schedule. Maybe you already were decreasing some of your work schedule to allow room for this. Again, you've been moving up to the point of retiring. You knew it was coming. Is that when you decided to write The Kendall Sparrow? No, I actually started writing this book about four years ago. And initially, I was working full-time as well. But in the last two years, I was working six hours a day. All through that time, I would just gleefully get up at four o'clock in the morning and write until seven. And I hardly missed a day. I just would go to bed at night, just so excited about waking up the next morning and continuing my work. A big chunk of the book and a rewrite of what I had written was furthered when I was able to go to England on a scholarship and just focus on the book for six weeks. Again, folks, we have Barbara Shell Lutke here today for Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you'll have links to our guests. We have a link to the Facebook page for Barb on that site, as well as a link to the book, The Kendall Sparrow. Barb was the Outreach and Literacy Coordinator for the Northwest School for Deaf and Hard of Hearing Children. There's more information you want to learn about her, and feel free to contact her via our links. All of our guests the past 15 years are on northernspiritradio.org, as well as a place to comment on this program, to comment on all of our programs. We love your feedback. There's also a donate button in which you can help support Northern Spirit Radio. But before you support us, I would really encourage you to support your local community radio station. It is so important to have alternative venues of information, news, music, something out of the mainstream, because the mainstream is really a very narrow pipeline, limited by the six or so corporations who control 90% plus of our media in the United States. So please start by supporting your local community radio station. Even talking today with Barbara Ludke, is about having additional ways to communicate. But I do want to get now to your book, The Kendall Sparrow, which just released. Now you're writing a book about Quaker history. I understand that this is not your first foray into writing about such topics. You wrote a book, I think it's called 17th Century Remarkable Quaker Youth, 25 Stories. What led you down this other path? 
Well, my family went to yearly meeting in Iowa City, near Iowa City, at Scatter Good Friends School. My two oldest daughters also did a year there. So at one of those opportunities when I was in the library, I was fortunate enough to read a little book by Jill Skidmore that featured Quaker women. And one of those stories was the story of Elizabeth Fletcher. Elizabeth Fletcher was very young when she was convinced. And at the time, my own oldest children were in high school, maybe college, but they were close to the age of Elizabeth Fletcher. And I read that story and I thought a lot about her parents and why they would let her travel with a small group of other young people and sometimes with another young woman so far. And I just never could let it go. I I just think about her a lot. I just always had her on my mind all through the years. It got me thinking about Quaker history. At some point, I really found out that a lot of the first Quakers, now called the Valiant 60, were young. Many of them were under 30. And I wanted to give my own Quaker daughters their history back, quite frankly. I looked at pictures of George Fox when he was on Pendle Hill, which is an important event to Quakers. He was having his vision of a people gathered. And in this picture that was produced, just a drawing that somebody made, but he's a crunkled up old guy and he's leaning on his cane and he's looking out, having his vision. Truth is he was 27 or 28 years old. So that further encouraged me to write something that would give these stories back. So I began to look for stories of people that were young. I found 25 of them. At the time that I was writing the 17th century Remarkable Quaker Youth, my oldest daughter, Breeze, was in the high school program of the Friends General Conference Gathering. And so I used her friends to illustrate the stories. And in the back of 17th century remarkable Quaker youth, there's stories of contemporary Quaker youth and some of the remarkable things they were doing. So I've always had the vision of redoing that book because it was self-published and young people have been such an inspiration in our faith. But that's where I originally wrote for publication the story of Elizabeth Fletcher. And then years later, I just wanted to know more about her life. There's very little known about some of these early Quaker women. And I knew that I would have to make it up based on research. And that's kind of what started the whole project of the Kendall Sparrow. It's kind of remarkable that you mentioned Scattergood Friends School and these remarkable youth, because I was there at one point and ran into a young woman. Anna was at that point, I think maybe 30 or so. I did interview her for my Spirit in Action program along the way because of her work with the Friends Peace Teams. But when she was 12 and she was raised in an evangelical, charismatic environment, She was outraged when the minister of their church wouldn't allow homeless people to bed outside the meeting house on weekends that that minister had called the police. And I said, well, where is this where, where Jesus says, you know, we're welcoming and caring for the poor. And so at 12, she was doing that. She wasn't Quaker yet. She became Quaker when she was 15 because she knew a librarian at her school who went to Quaker meeting 
she got introduced to Quakers through that and became the kind of a world advocate that she is. Uh, Steve Chase, likewise, when he was 13, became convinced, as the Quaker word is used, you know, that he left what he was doing, what he believed, and said, this is where I fit in community. And so remarkable Quaker youth, I've encountered a number of them. There was a 15-year-old who started coming to our meeting who lived an hour and a half away why did she come to our meeting? Because she had found out that what she was doing was not authentically true to her. And she started researching, well, what does fit? So you tell this beautiful story of Elizabeth Fletcher, the Kendall Sparrow. We're going to say a little bit about that. But first, I wanted to mention that part of my information leading up to your book was this review in the Western Friend. And We've got some wonderful people doing work and information over there. You've already mentioned Friends Journal, which I've been reading since the early 1980s. Western Friend, I added on later, and in some ways, it feels even more alive. David Tucker is the person who wrote the review in Western Friend. And one of the things that really captivated me about his review that relates directly to the story is the mention of Elizabeth's trauma. So I don't want to lose that thread. I'm glad he brought it up in the review. But the very first thing I have to ask you about Kendall Sparrow is something that no one else is going to ask you. And that is, you mentioned in the first couple pages, they're preparing some kind of a stew over a fire, preparing a meal. And in the stew, they include acorns. And I thought it remarkable because I happen to be a fan of acorns. Each fall, I make wild rice acorn burgers, a certain recipe that I made up, I invented, because my friend Sam had taught me about the availability of acorns all around here. How is it that you knew to mention acorns? Almost every page of that book has something that I had to look up on the internet. And I had a lot of fun doing it, quite frankly. So, you know, I'd come to them having a fork in that same scene. And I go, hmm, I wonder if they had forks. Or what would a poor farming family have had in their cupboard? And would they have had floors? And just all kinds of strange things that you don't really probably think much about, but I wanted to build all that in. And I think from several of the comments I've gotten from people, the inclusion of those 17th century facts really helped to make the story come alive. I'm sure if a 17th century expert read the book, there'd be lots of things to find fault with, but I took my researching skills as a deaf professor and tried to reinvent them for use in this novel. So I do want to encourage people to check out acorns if they haven't. It's a ubiquitous food across much of the United States that we completely ignore. They don't know that if you just soak it a few times in water, pour it off, that the the bitter taste is gone, the thing that will be disagreeable to your stomach in the same way that you can't eat olives off of a tree. Olives off of a tree, I, I tried it once when walking through Morocco. Oh, this is an olive tree. I put one in my mouth and I spit it out immediately. It's completely unpalatable. So 
Acorns are one of the highly nutritious foods that is available everywhere. And if we were just harvesting the acorns, we wouldn't have to have all of these fields with pesticides and all of that. So there's my little bit for acorns. But we really want to get to is Elizabeth Fletcher and the book written by Barbara Shell Lutke called The Kendall Sparrow. So it starts with Elizabeth Fletcher at the age of maybe 13. And I'm sure you're very aware of this, Barbara, but I think a lot of people at this age do not have any idea of how much we infantilize our children. That at the age of 13, I think we start thinking of kids as being able to do things for themselves. But in fact, I don't think it's at all unusual in many of the, say, third world countries of the world that a kid at seven can be responsible for caring for a little brother and sister and harvesting in the field and uh, hauling water from the stream and working many hours a day. How much did your view of children change by doing the research for the Kendall Sparrow? Well, I was very influenced by ministry and counsel in the Penn Valley meeting that we were attending when I first started working on 17th century remarkable Quaker youth. And they had asked my oldest daughter, Breeze, at the age of 12 or 14 to be a member of the Ministry and Oversight Committee. I remember she was young enough that I had to drive her to the meetings. And I was very impressed with that because I had then and many years after taken a lot of counsel from Breeze. She was a very wise, Quaker-directed young person. So I had that in my background when I was thinking about Elizabeth Fletcher. The most common thing that was said to me then and maybe even now was, oh, well, you know, people died so much younger then and they were just so much more responsible. But then I keep thinking about the research on our brain that your brain doesn't really fully develop until you're around 25. So you're still dealing with somebody who is coming into their being. So I was kind of balancing as I was writing those two ideas. And I did find these farm kids in my writing to be very responsible young people that were given chores and walked into town and did marketing. As And like I said, from my research, I think that was very realistic. I actually have an uncle who I was raised by for a year after my mom died in his household, he stopped going to school at after eighth grade. And that's, of course, not at all unusual. You go back another generation, eighth grade would be a high attainment. And so you're talking maybe at the age of 14, someone's done with school and now it's time to work. So with that frame of reference, what Elizabeth Fletcher did maybe is not quite so out there. But I think it's really hard because we tend to think, well, someone might be able to have a job when they're 18. It's like, no, let's start it. I was mowing lawns and doing all that, certainly when I was 11 years old. So tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Fletcher. Obviously, she captivated you. You've already mentioned the connection with your daughter. But there's something about her ministry, I think, that must have captured you as well. Well, I didn't actually know a great deal about her specific ministry when I first started this project. I really was captivated by the idea that she was allowed or led to travel at such a young age. And I refer to her often in my 
speaking as the youngest of the Valiant 60. I'm not exactly sure if that's true, but it's very close to being true. There were a couple of other women that seemed to be a little, just a few years older than her that are also part of this story. And we really don't know much about these people, but Elizabeth Fletcher was severely beaten up when she was uh, 15, 16 years old. And so that also kind of drew me in as to why that happened, what the buildup for that was. And it all just bothered me or was on my mind. I, I feel like I spent many, many first days in Quaker meeting with Elizabeth Fletcher. And probably one of the saddest things about actually getting the book published was that that all kind of fell away and I missed her. And I would try to like bring her back. I still have a picture of me sitting where she's buried in Kendall. And I look at it every morning when I talk to my mom and dad and my brother who just passed away and my God and spirit. And I think of her, but I never can get it quite back. Like it was during the time that I, before I wrote the book and then during the time that I was writing the book. So she just kind of came alive for me. And like I said, I had all these parenting questions too. And so I had to learn about her situation and how it was that these young people were released to do ministry. But getting back to your question, I really took advantage of my authorship and tried to make the different characters in the book use different spiritual language. So Elizabeth really comes from a way that I look a lot at spirit, which is through nature, really informed by nature and impressed with the awe of this amazing world that's been created for us. Whereas some of the men who could read and were privy to the Bible in the story come from a much more Christocentric, biblical manner in the way that they preach. So I have what I think maybe would have happened. So I have Elizabeth and her traveling companion, Lizzie, use what they knew, what I think they knew, the farm, having children, nature, these things to explain their God, their spirit to other women and other people as they traveled along. So I'm hoping that the words that are used in the ministry and the stories speak to different people depending on what their perspective is of this thing that's greater than us in this world. Do you know for a fact that that's how she communicated or is that something you're intuiting? No, I don't know much about her at all. If she hadn't gotten beat up, I think that we probably wouldn't even know about her. Some of the other people that are mentioned in the story for example, Dorothy Woe, we know hardly anything about her except she was bridled, and if she and she wrote about it. And if she hadn't been bridled, we probably wouldn't even know about much about her because she and her sister Jane are rarely mentioned. So these women did not take center stage like George Fox and Edward Burroughs and some of these men did. So I've really had to just read and research and try to create what I think their lives would have been. But no, I don't know at all how she preached. She did write one pamphlet, which somebody told me she might have dictated, actually. 
her ability to read and write is not documented either. She might have dictated the pamphlet, which was somewhat common, and it's very Christocentric. So I imagine she probably did preach more like that about using God and Father. I have tried to include some of the original language that was from first sources in the historical novel, and the language that was really absolutely used is in the back where there's biographies of 20 of the major characters. The reason I have you here, Barb, for Spirit in Action is not to convince people that they should be Quakers, but it is to engage in world healing. Obviously, your work with deaf studies and with working with deaf and hard of hearing children is one way of healing in the world. And I'm kind of assuming that the reason you wrote this book is not just again to say, well, look at Quakers are great, right? It's because there's certain values that I think you want to lift up. What are the values that you're trying to lift up through the story of Elizabeth Fletcher? Well, one is that as older people, we should be listening to our youth. A very important story is that of Elizabeth Hooten, who I included in the novel. She was the first person who really listened to George Fox, who's credited with starting Quakerism. And he was about 22. She was about 45. And she listened to him and encouraged him to preach. And I find that very, very important in our society. Who started Occupy? Who started Black Lives Matter? Who started the North Dakota Pipeline? These are all initiatives started by young people, and they're often not credited for their work. And in fact, I would ask Quaker historians about the ages of people that they were talking about when I had a chance to dialogue with them, and they often didn't know, or it wasn't reported. So I did a lot of math (laughs) as I prepared my book and found out how young a lot of these people were. And I think that's one of the main themes is that we need to not be ageist and listen to our young friends and young community organizers and value their ideas and support them in their work. I also sense that one of the important values you wanted to connect was something about, and as Quakers, we believe in this equality, right? And it's a a wide-ranging equality. There's this completely bizarre fact that in mid-1600s in England, Quakers believed men and women were equal ministers, equal receivers of the word of God, that that God's light shone equally through men and women. And in an age when women were property and women were not supposed to speak in public and so on, this was a pretty strange fact. I think in in the case of Elizabeth Fletcher, she's not only a female, but she is a very young female two strikes against her, if you will. If she had only been black, it would have been almost perfect, right? So I think there's something about equality you're trying to teach us, not just of older people and younger people, but I think about women. Some of what you're saying is true. I framed it a little bit differently. I wanted to get the stories of these women out 
in more of an equal way than they're currently reflected in our Quaker history. A lot of these names never appear when you read about Quaker history. And I wanted to do it in a really palatable way because a lot of our Quaker history is very intellectually written, very academic. And I wanted people to be able to learn about Quaker history in a very entertaining, palatable way. So I wanted the women's stories to be told. I wanted the people to have appreciation for what First Quakers did for us in a way that makes meeting possible today. I got very intrigued by why they survived when there were all these different faiths popping up. And why did Quakers live on? And the reason I think that is, is because people traveled. And people went from place to place, and they told about our faith, and they convinced other people. And yes, they were very equitable, and they had women leadership and women ministers. And women had to figure out like how to have babies and do their work, how to be good wives and do their work. And I tried to make a place for that in the story. One of the key events in the life of Elizabeth Fletcher that you've already alluded to and which has a major appearance in the book is when she, and I think Lizzie's with her at that point, uh, they go to Oxford and they are attacked as they're going along by essentially some seminary students, if you will. Tell what happened there and why you included that in the book. It's got a central place in what happened in the life of Elizabeth Fletcher. Yes, it does. And as I mentioned, I think that's why we know about Elizabeth Fletcher. I want to say before I get into that story that I think what's more admirable is how Elizabeth picked herself up and went on with her work for a couple more years, even going over to Ireland. So. I tried to not just end the story with what happened to her in Oxford, which many people do, and think about, pray about, conceptualize about what it must have been like for her to go forward. But picture in England at the time, and one of the challenges of the book was to build in enough of the context so people could understand why these things happened. But in England at the time, there was only one church, and that was the Church of England. And to minister in the church, you had to go to school in either Oxford or Cambridge to become a minister. So picture these girls who have been traveling for days, coming in through the gates of Oxford, and they're young, they're uneducated, they don't even know how to read and write. And they come in and they start preaching their faith the Quaker faith. And these boys, these young men who were studying to be ministers were just astounded. And they took great advantage of these girls and the people at their colleges let them do it. And they just harassed and injured and possibly raped these girls. And who was arrested? The girls. So the girls were put in prison This part is all documented, and it's provided in the back of the book. And they were taken before the vice president, and what was actually said to them and their responses back was recorded and is in the back of the book. And they kept their faith. 
they were given the sentence of being whipped out of town. So they got whipped. At the time, another woman who was about 30-ish named Mary Fisher had been whipped out of Cambridge. And she had been stripped to the waist. So I don't know if they were stripped. But these were just young, innocent girls who certainly would have never appeared in public being stripped to the waist. So if that, in fact, happened, they kept their faith. They were found to be singing and calling out to spirit and really being a model of their beliefs as this happened to them. We don't really know what happened afterwards to them, except there was a doctor living in Oxford at the time by the name of Betis, and his home was where the first Quaker meeting was held. So I just put those things together and figure that somebody found them as they were put out of the city, out of the city gates, got them to that doctor, and they influenced that family where not much later the first Quaker meeting took place. So that story got very recorded by some of the early men who were writing about Quakers in their journals. That was a very common thing, that people would write their spiritual journey down, and their story got recorded. Now, I don't know why Elizabeth Levins, who I call Lizzie to keep them separate, I don't know why she didn't get as beat up and molested, but she's not recorded as being as molested as Elizabeth Fletcher who actually suffered from her injuries for the rest of her life. There's a number of different conclusions we could draw from this historical example. I mean, the thing really happened. Elizabeth Fletcher was badly abused by these essentially seminary students. One of the conclusions one could draw, the lesson one could draw, is that religion is all hypocritical and damaging and the world would be better without religion. I don't think that that's the lesson you want to draw, but is there a lesson for today from what happened there? Well, I think quite the opposite. I think in their life and in my life, when times are really awful, it's it's faith that brings us through. And the fact that they had such a strong faith, I think, allowed Elizabeth to get through that event, be joyful as it was happening to her, um, which is not uncommon with women martyrs all through years before. And I think she had been told that, and that's also talked about in the book. And um, also that she did have a falling out of her faith, which is recorded, meaning it did actually happen, but she rose above it and she went on to minister in Ireland. She was ministering in Dublin and she was the first to minister in Cork, Ireland. So we know she found her faith again, and by that time was a very, even though she was 18, 19 years old, she was still considered a very senior, solid Quaker friend. So I think in my own life, when I think of when I've really been struggling, it's my faith that's gotten me through. And I think that's what was true for her, and I think that is a major message of the story. Well, you referred, Barb, to your own life, your experience of this. Uh, You didn't grow up as Quaker, and I don't think you even grow up tremendously religious. Could you give us the synopsis of 
where you got to or where you came from and where you got to because it seems to me that people who do world healing work and who have the chutzpah, the dedication, the, the grounding to do it for a lifetime, that we should learn about what enables a person to do that kind of thing, whether it's for Elizabeth Fletcher or whether it's for Barbara Lutke. You know, when that review came out, I sent it to one of my siblings, and he said back to me, I envy you your faith. And I have thought a lot about that because I don't really know why I turned out the way I did, but I do feel like I'm in that category that Quakers often talk about of being a seeker. I started at a very young age, maybe middle school, high school, really enjoying going to the faith services of people in my neighborhood. I grew up in one of those neighborhoods in Madison, Wisconsin, where we were middle-class families. We hardly ever left our block. We're still all really good friends. One of those families was Jewish. One of those families was Methodist. And I often went to activities with them. I had a good friend in high school that was Presbyterian and belonged to a really active Presbyterian youth group. And so I went along on those activities for a long time. And then I started having children and adopting children. And my faith was really kind of put aside until my family lived in Sycamore, Illinois. And we were raising our own children by that time. And again, I started going with families in our neighborhood to their services, especially on important events, important holidays. That's kind of where I was at at the time. I wanted the kids to to go to church on Easter or some event like that. And so I started going to Quaker meeting and taking my family to Quaker meeting with a neighbor. And the Quaker meeting in DeKalb, Illinois was like eight people. I mean, it was very small meeting. But from that meeting, I learned about Friends General Conference gathering, and we were going to be moving to Kansas. And so I found opportunity to meet up with Quakers from Kansas City. And when we arrived in Kansas City and went to meeting, there were those friends that we had met at the gathering to welcome us. And that was our whole meeting for probably a dozen years or so. So I've always been very open to different faith practices. Currently, I'm attending a number of different services. I go to my own Quaker meeting, Salmon Bay Friends meeting, but I've also started going to North Seattle Friends meeting. This is all through the technology of Zoom. And then about four years ago, I started going to a Pentecostal church. This was after the murder of Michael Brown, and I wanted to have African-American friends, and I knew a couple that went to this church, and so I asked if I could go, thinking I would be visiting, and I've ended up staying there. I have good friends there. As divine intervention works, there are two deaf people now that have come into that church, not by any of my doing, and so now I interpret If you've ever been to a Pentecostal church service, you might have some appreciation for what that interpreting looks like, but it's often four hours of quite energetic signing. So, you know, it's been, it's been an interesting road and I just finished an article that's going to be published in Friends Journal online that's called the Pentecostal Quaker that tells a little bit about that journey. 
So I've always just been very open to different faith practices, and I feel like I'm still finding my way. It's a rich path with so many twists and turns and and deep valleys and uh, and loving meadows. How about that? I'm not sure if Elizabeth Fletcher would have used that phrase, but I think she might have. I think she might have. <laughs> I do want to thank you, especially, Barbara, for your work for those many years with the the people who have hearing challenges and making a difference in their lives, both with your textbooks, with your work in teaching, raising two daughters, adopting and raising two daughters who are deaf. I think that there's something magical that has led you to that and that you've been able to pass on to others. So I thank you so much for that work. And also, I want to thank you for writing The Kendall Sparrow. It's a wonderfully fun book. Because we Quakers are not into theology in the way that a lot of other religions are, because we don't have our own doctrines or or any anything like that, it's still wonderful to see how the Spirit speaks through the lives and actions of community. And you capture that really well with Kendall Sparrow. So thank you for writing that book and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. You know, on that note, I'd like to mention that, you know, it takes a village to write a book. And I was very lucky to get three grants that I'd like people to know about. One was the Lyman Fund that allowed me the seed money to go to England and do my research. Another was the Woodbrook Quaker Center, which hosted me for six weeks so I could use their historical library and be around their scholars there. And the third was the Obelia Grant which is going to allow me to disseminate the book through audio tape and through visiting Quaker meetings. So if you'd like to, if you're Quaker and you'd like to have me do a book sharing with you, we can do that through zoom and hopefully someday soon we'll be able to do it in person. And if you do want to connect up with Barbara Shell Ludke, come via NordenSpiritRadio.org. I'll have a link that'll help connect you up with her, both her Facebook page and some of the places where you can get the book. You'll be enriched by what she's written, both Quaker and non-Quaker literature. And I do appreciate that. And one more thing I want to thank you for is your offer to attend Eau Claire Friends meeting so that my friend Anne from college days can attend because she's deaf. And so thank you for that willingness as well. Sure. Happy to do that. Again, we have those links on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Pick up a copy of Kendall Sparrow and have yourself a fun little historical novel read. And we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.